Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts, and he's going to be explaining about deliberative democracy, what it is and why it might really help. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, gift subscriptions to the LRB for yourself or somebody else start from just $19.99. Find our best offers and a reading list to accompany today's episode at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. So we are in Matthew Taylor's office on the top floor of the beautiful Royal Society of Arts building, a little hum in the background. Let's start with some definitions. What distinguishes deliberative democracy from other ways of doing democracy? I think the critical difference is the notion of deliberation, which is the idea that in order to fully tap into citizens' views of an issue, you need to give them the time, the information, the range of opinions which enable them to make an informed choice. Now that then creates a problem, which is, well, once a group is informed, are they any longer representative of the public? So the second idea is that the deliberative group should be, sometimes the phrase is used, a mini-public. It should be a group which is as far as possible representative of the population. So the simplest way to understand it is an analogy with the jury, which is, although it's actually a much more a sophisticated process of identifying a representative group and it's a much more sophisticated process of weighing up the evidence than criminal juries I think on the whole but nevertheless it's the same principle the principle is a group of your peers hear the evidence reach a judgment and you as a citizen who's not been involved can rest assured that had you listened to the same evidence you'd have been likely to reach the same conclusion. On the jury analogy a jury hears the evidence presented by partisans in a way it's it's presented by lawyers making a case. Would this need to have something like that too, or is is the idea that there's a neutral space here and the evidence just kind of presents itself? So it's a combination of both, David. So it's a a neutral space in the sense that it's important that these processes are organised by people who are impartial and that the processes developed in an impartial way and that there is equal opportunities for all sides of the debate to be heard, that the evidence is balanced. But it doesn't mean that everybody who participates is impartial. So on the one hand, you would involve in that process people who represent the different points of view that are being debated. And also your representative sample would also be representative in the sense that it would contain a range of opinions in relation to that. And one of the interesting things about deliberative democracy, one of the rich things about it, is that it enables you to understand not just the decision that people come to at the end, but the process they go through. What are the things which led them And most deliberative processes find a reasonably high proportion of citizens change their mind as a result of the process. What is it that particularly led them to change their mind? The word deliberation itself, one of the things it means is, like you said, slow. It takes time. A deliberate decision is one that you've, you've not rushed. And I think most people have a sense that one of the challenges of representative democracy is we don't have the time for it. So is there a challenge here that you've got to get citizens who are prepared to put in that amount of time and that's one of the things that makes them somewhat unrepresentative we, we don't on the whole want to spend a huge amount of time on politics it's one of the great things about representative government that it actually spares us doing that work is that a gap that this can bridge i think there's two, two answers to that. the first is that 
generally speaking, when people are asked to participate in these processes, they are quite keen to do it. You, I think it's reasonable you pay people or you pay their expenses. So you know, the, the request that is made of people to give up a whole weekend or whatever to deliberate is, is put in reasonable terms. And actually you get a very good response rate. Interestingly, people start off the process worrying whether or not they're able to do it. At the end of the process, they've, generally speaking, very much enjoyed it and are quite keen to do it again. But the second point is that advocates of deliberation are not saying that the whole country needs to deliberate. The point is it is, as I I said, a mini-public. It's a group that represents the public, that does the work for the public. Again, going back to that principle of the jury, I don't need to hear that evidence. I just need to know that someone like me heard that evidence and they reached that conclusion. And that's at the heart of deliberation. That is the idea. The idea is this outcome is an outcome which I can feel would reflect what would happen to me had I been through that process, even though I don't have time to listen to all that evidence. And it therefore counters one of the problems of representation, issues that have been around forever, but I think you've been saying some interesting things about how that's got worse recently, which is the notion that our representatives, that is to say our formal political representatives, full-time politicians, are not actually representative of us and that we can't trust that the judgments they come to do stand for the judgments that we would come to. Is it part of what justifies deliberative democracy that it's more likely to come up with the right answer? Because this is again a kind of timeless question about democratic politics. Is what legitimates it the fact that ordinary citizens have arrived at an answer whether it's a good one or a bad one or is what legitimates it that if you involve as many people as possible and get a wide range of points of view you're more likely to come up with in some sense the correct answer I think it's both I think that if people spend time and they look at something and they understand it in depth they are more likely to reach the right conclusion about it also I think one of the critical things about deliberation is it legitimises the representatives making braver choices. Very few advocates of deliberation at this stage are arguing that it should replace representative democracy. Where it's been used, and it's been used all around the world, in fact Britain is now pretty much lagging around the rest of the world in terms of the, the use of these kinds of methods, it is always used to inform the choices made by representatives and very often to give them in a sense greater legitimacy to make difficult decisions for the long term. Now. What you can't shy away from, and this is something that we should, we should discuss a bit further because it's actually a really material barrier to deliberation, you can't shy away from there are there are technical elements to it. The way you design it is actually important. So there are dangers in badly designed deliberation. One danger is a kind of soggy compromise, and so it's very important that you don't say to people through deliberation, you have to reach an agreement you all sign up to. What you need to do is reflect the view of the group, and there may still be differences at the end, but the interesting thing is the balance of opinion and the journey that people have been on. Actually, there's another danger that uh, Cass Sunstein and others have talked about, which is that when you get people to deliberate, the danger is that the extremes are the most powerful poles and that people are driven apart. It turns out that you can mitigate that as well if you design it correctly. So where has it worked? If, if we look around the world, if we're lagging behind, can you give us a couple of examples of places where you think deliberation has really added value to representative democracy? So let me take you to Texas. Let me take you to, to Ulan Bator in uh, Outer Mongolia, and then let's come back to Westminster. So a great example, I think, is that about 10 years ago, the Energy Authority in Texas wanted to think about its kind of strategy, a very oil-dependent state, and also one where, of course, you know, huge vested interest in oil. They went through this process. It turned out that citizens were very keen on a more sustainable and diverse mixture of energy sources, Texas, I think, has gone as a consequence of the 
recommendations made by that deliberative poll, which then influenced the decisions of the Energy Authority. I think Texas went from being the least sustainable energy producer to one of the most sustainable, you know, a huge amount of wind power, for example, in Texas. I just don't think that journey for an energy authority in Texas to say, look, we need to move away to dependence on oil would have been possible without them being able to say, because this is what ordinary Texan citizens, having spent some time thinking about this, is the thing is the right thing to do. So then let's go to Ulaanbaatar, where the mayor had some development money to spend. I think his favoured option was to build a metro. He went to citizens through a deliberative polling methodology where people were given lots and lots of different choices, and they gradually went through these options to winnow them down. One of the favoured options was to invest in making schools warmer in winter because the schools were freezing cold in winter and stopped children going to school. And the mayor agreed to that. And I think what's nice about that is ordinary citizens said, well, look, we know about your vanity project and that's great, but, you know, actually our kids not freezing their nuts off in, in winter is a slightly more pressing priority for us. And then it's come to Westminster. So a few weeks ago, the Health and Social Care Select Committee along with the DWP Select Committee, organised two weekends of citizens' juries, which is one particular deliberative method, to look at the funding of social care. And the conclusions that the citizens came to, and you won't be surprised to hear that part of those conclusions was that middle-class older people need to pay a little bit more, actually went into the report that those select committees made. And I think everybody, all the MPs who are involved in that process, were very impressed by it. One interesting thing is that when the BBC reported on those select committee reports, you will look in vain for any reference to deliberative democracy. So one of the challenges of this is to get the mainstream media interested in it. I think they're not interested partly because it's quite technical, and secondly because I actually think they're threatened. Because the idea that ordinary citizens are perfectly capable of reaching sound judgments if you just give them the space and the time and balanced information is what I think journalists feel a certain cognitive dissonance about because they like to believe that without journalists there... Uh, citizens are incapable of getting their heads around the issues. I want to come on to Brexit in a second and where this might fit into that, but there's a wider question here in the current political climate, for want of a better word, in a populist age, that there might well be a suspicion that deliberative democracy is kind of trying to get progressive politics in by another route, that it skews progressive. So the Texan example that you gave, clearly that's to move a state to a position towards renewables and so on that is politically associated with one side of the, the great partisan divide in America. I don't know enough about Mongolian politics to know where <laughs> school heating fits in. Yeah, we'll do that next year. But I think there is, there is a challenge here, not least this is about slow, informed politics. These are good things. But so much of what drives contemporary politics is large crowds, charismatic leaders, effective slogans, sloganeering. Is there a danger that deliberation looks like it is deliberately trying to counter that? There are certain patterns that emerge from deliberative processes. Yes, it, it does tend to lead citizens to think a bit more about the long term and the consequences of decisions and the relationship between decisions, which of course is a massive problem for referenda because it doesn't enable you to see those connections. And, you know, there are certain patterns. If you have a deliberative process around criminal justice, people do kind of tend to start as Daily Mail readers and the old Daily Mail and end up being more like The Guardian. But there's another side to this, which is possibly more comforting for people from a kind of writer-centred perspective, which is another characteristic, is that citizens often go into these processes saying it's all the government's fault and are more likely to come out saying, actually, no, it's to do with us and it's to do with how we behave and what we have to do. But ultimately, you know, you can't predict the outcome of these processes. So I guess if you think it's inherently progressive 
to consider an issue properly and to consider all sides of it and to deliberate yes it is you know it's a it's a progressive conspiracy but I think that's just an argument we kind of have to have. I, you know, I, I want to meet someone and talk to them who says, look, politics isn't real if it's not shallow and polarized and adversarial. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we've heard recently from some prominent people, including Damon Albarn, the suggestion that in this Brexit logjam that we're in, this Christmas logjam, no one knows how to get out of it. But one possibility is a citizens' assembly. And a citizens' assembly is not the only way of doing deliberation, but it's very much associated with that. But there are two questions here. Do you think the Brexit process was itself flawed because it didn't have deliberation in it? And given where we are, do you think deliberation is a way out? We should have had some kind of deliberative process before the Brexit referendum. The work that you did with the Constitution Unit on referenda, the lessons we we should learn. Uh, I think absolutely. If you're, you know, I'm not a great fan of referenda, but if we are going to referendum in the future, I think proper deliberative processes before that, so that citizens understand the choices they're making and they're framed in ways that citizens can get their head around. Now, we have a strong example of this, which was that there was a deliberative process before the Irish referendum on changing the constitution in relation to the abortion law. And my view is that what happened in that process was that something that could have been incredibly divisive and problematic turned into something which was actually quite positive. And yes, it reached an outcome I would have supported in terms of liberalising the law, but it seemed to have a kind of catalyzing effect around the country that people felt this had been a proper process, properly done. Contrast that with what happened with Brexit. So certainly we probably, I don't think we would have been in this position. I would predict, for example, that had we if you can predict something from the past, but my view would Those be... the best prediction. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. My view would be if you'd had a deliberative process before the first Brexit referendum, there's a pretty good chance they would have identified the need to have a second referendum at the outset, you know, and then we wouldn't be where we are now if people had always known that was coming at the end of the process. Should we do it now? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a great fan of deliberation, but I slightly worry that if you use it in such an unbelievably politically charged atmosphere where it seems... Every single issue is politicised in terms of where you stand in this debate. I worry slightly that it could kill the very idea of deliberation because those people who worry they're not going to get the right outcome would just caricature it and undermine it. And this links to the broader question, I think. The problem about deliberation is you need to make it a habit. So in Canada, one in 67, sounds like a random figure I know, but one in 67 families in Canada have been asked to participate in a deliberative process. That's a pretty high proportion of the population have, have done this. They recognise it, they know what it is. And when the government says we're going to deliberate, they go, oh yeah, well we know about that process and we know that it's fair and above board and we can see it. The problem in this country is because it's not a norm, because it's not a habit. When somebody proposes it, like the group of people led by Damon Alwyn on, on today, you get the reaction, I saw the reaction on Twitter, which is, well, this is some kind of nerdly liberal conspiracy thing, you know, this has been cooked up in order to to avoid acting on the first referendum. And you're always going to get that response. I mean, I, when I talk to people about deliberation, they will say, well, how can you make sure the evidence is balanced? Can citizens really do this? And you will always get those objections until you make it a habit. So the RSA next year is going to be leading a campaign with a number of other organisations like Involve, which is the kind of charity that really works in this space. 
And we'll be arguing for a set of measures that make deliberation much more of a habit, having deliberative processes every year, having a national assembly, having a what works centre for deliberation. The government has put a little bit of money into local authorities doing deliberative experiments and we're part of that as well. So we have to make it a habit because if you have to win the argument every time you do it, it ain't going to work. So I just want to ask a couple of questions to go back to where we started about how you set this up and, and that jury analogy. Because when people think of a jury, they often think of it's a random selection and it's a cross-section and you'll get different types on that jury, but they don't think of it as bringing together the tribes, that you're gathering people who are going to see themselves divided within the jury. But in our current politics, it is very tribal. And one of the things that's often said about the tribes is they don't know each other. They actually don't really converse. There's a huge gulf in their experience, the kind of information they get. Is the basic idea here that actually it almost does need to bring the tribes together. So you're not just picking lots of little subgroupings and having their representative on this, that it's going to be tribal to start with, but the hope is at the end it won't be. That say with something like Brexit, actually deliberation is one of the few ways you could get the tribes to talk to each other. Yeah, I think one of the arguments for deliberation, which isn't often made, but I think is quite strong, is the aesthetics of it, actually. I mean, politics is ugly, you know, (laughs) I think... You know, question time, and maybe it'll be different with a new presenter, but, you know, question time is just a really ugly thing. You know, it's just people being encouraged to shout at each other on the kind of flimsiest basis and score points off each other. And, and for a lot of people, that is politics. When you watch deliberative processes and you see people with different perspectives from different backgrounds sitting down with each other, working things through, bringing their own personal experience to it, you start to see them actually changing their views. It's rather beautiful. It reminds you of what democracy should be about. So I I think that as well as generating interesting outcomes, as well as legitimising our representatives making braver decisions, it is a, a form of democracy that is attractive and uplifting. The classic 19th century ideal of Parliament was that it was a deliberative assembly. The John Stuart Mill view is that that was where these issues were going to be thrashed out by people who were serious about arriving at the truth. And it's probably never been that, and it doesn't seem like it's that today. So this is going to connect to representative democracy. Do the politicians have to do it as well? I mean, are these citizens' juries going to be separate and then get plugged into representative politics? Or do you actually need... Because it feels like some deliberation wouldn't be a bad thing at the level of the the representative assembly. So I talk about deliberation as a gateway reform in the sense that I think if you got the deliberation habit, you can then use deliberative methodologies to explore other democratic reforms. And I think that you can win the case for deliberation more easily than for some of the other kind of reforms that people talk about. People don't have a fixed view. People's main problem with deliberation is ignorance. They simply don't understand it. Once they do understand it, I've not seen a kind of ideological cleavage where people on the right or the left particularly prefer it. So I think it can be a means to broader reform. But I also think that when you look at the other things that you might do, it's a lot more realistic. So actually, I don't really believe it's realistic that we're suddenly going to have a citizenry that wants to kind of spend their Tuesday evenings in political meetings. So the idea that greater engagement is the way to solve democracy, I don't really believe in that. You know, I I don't see any evidence. And I also don't see evidence that even if you did increase participation a bit, it's actually going to lead to better politics. Because once people do start to participate, they become kind of different kinds of people. And secondly, I don't see any simple 
possible route back to a kind of the parliament of the past. And I think the argument you've been making recently, David, which I think is so powerful, which is that in a sense in the old days when parliament was a tiny elite that was completely unrepresentative of anybody apart from the kind of people in the clubs of central London, then 95% of society was united in saying, well, that's them. They are the political class and we're all outside that. And, you know, people then would have a kind of big argument about that and it legitimised attacks on representative democracy as being an elite function. But we were all in it together, as in a sense, us, the citizens, versus this tiny elite. But now, as you've said, the problem is now that Parliament, we have become much more representative of Parliament. And because we've become older and because we've become more educated, Parliament now doesn't represent a tiny sliver of the society. It represents half of society. You know, the half that's educated, the half that's middle-aged, the half that's middle-class. And I think that's, you know, that is a really big problem. I don't see an easy way through that. So I think the point about deliberation is it it recognises the inherent limitations on mass participation. It recognises the inherent limitations of our representative system. And it brings something to bear which helps deal with those flaws. We've done a few of these guides and um, on the whole they've been quite gloomy and this one is quite positive. Um, So the RSA are going to lead on this next year, but what's a realistic time frame for this? Because one of the challenges about representative democracy is that institutional change is incredibly slow, and yet politics is so urgent. And there is some urgency around this. I think people recognise it. There is a sense that our politics is broken in fundamental ways. But when you look ahead sort of in your rosiest view of the future, five years, ten years, could this be the start of a really significant change? Deliberation is growing all around the world. It works. Politicians are using it more for some of the reasons that we've explored. And so broadly speaking, as long as the whole kind of show doesn't collapse as a consequence of what's going on in the world right now, I see deliberation growing. Um, So I'm confident about that. Britain is lagging. I think that because the main barrier is ignorance rather than hostility, a campaign that gets people to understand this better and more examples of it locally can help as well. So I'm positive about that. But you know, I also think there's a very specific opportunity here. You know, I've got the email address of 10 Downing Street because I just did a piece of work for them about the future of employment. And I've used that email address to speak to people in number 10 and say, look, here's an idea. If and when the Brexit thing is finished, wouldn't it be great if Theresa May, if she is still Prime Minister, or whoever the Prime Minister is, to be frank, to say, look, now this is whatever we've got to, let's learn some lessons from this about how our democracy works, about how our discussion works. Let's think about the possibility of being able to do these things better. So I have this little hope that there may be a great speech made as you know next summer and whenever it is we get out of this, if, maybe that's too optimistic, but where our politicians say, because surely, David, surely one thing that has to come out of all of this is a willingness to recognise we must never do this again. And deliberation is part of how we avoid doing it again. Links to further reading on deliberative democracy are at tppodcast underscore. Next week's guide is going to be with Helen Thompson, and she is going to explain Bretton Woods. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 